Did you know that there's one sin that God will not forgive? One sin that God cannot forgive. And I realize that that's, that's pretty heavy right out of the gate on Church Picnic Sunday, but, but stick along with me here. We know that all sin is offensive to God, that all sin needs forgiving. Because any sin at its heart really is a devaluing of who, God's, of who God is. It, it's a rebellion against his authority. That because God is so good, there is no sin that God can even tolerate. Sin always separates the sinner from the life that can be found in the one who created him or her. Sin always produces death. And that was the reason God sent Jesus, his beloved son, into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to accomplish the work of the Father, to conquer sin by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins, to defeat death by rising from the grave, just like we've been singing about this morning. Because of Jesus Christ and only because of him, you can find forgiveness for your sins. You can be restored to the God who made you by repenting and believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All sins need forgiving. And praise God, forgiveness has been made available in the name of Jesus Christ. God is so good and perfect in his holiness that he can't allow for any sin, and if he did, he wouldn't be a good God. God's concern for you today is that you might know him. That you might have a relationship with him, unhindered by sin and death. That's what you were made for, and God made it available in Jesus Christ. By sending his own son to the world, he's revealed his love for you. God has tipped his hand to all of us. He is for us. He loves us. He's shown us that he is the greatest good we could ever have. The pleasure and the delight and the fulfillment that comes from knowing the one and only one who made you. Nothing can compare to that, and nothing could be worse than missing out on that. The God who said, let there be light, suffer death and defeat and darkness in your place so that you could be restored to him. Our sins killed the author of life and he still offers the gift of eternal life to anyone who will believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Every sin needs forgiving, but there is one sin that will not be forgiven. We have it from from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to his words. He said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. If you didn't catch that, let me just help, you, help it to sink in here. Jesus, the Son of God, the friend of sinners, who was sent into this world not to condemn it, But to save it, that same Jesus, the one who would cry out in agony on the cross and pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That same Jesus said there is a sin which never has forgiveness. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin of unbelief. By unbelief, I don't mean faith that is small. I don't mean faith that is mixed with some doubt from time to time. The sin of unbelief is that hardened rejection of the truth that can be confronted with the ultimate good in Jesus Christ and say, I don't want that. That hardened rejection of God's goodness that can look at the most beautiful, truthful, good thing and say, that's not what I want. Someone who refuses to believe cannot be forgiven because they have willfully cut themselves off from their only hope of forgiveness. 
When God calls sinners to repentance and faith, he doesn't orchestrate salvation like some divine compromise where God's way over here and we're way over there and he asks us to meet in the middle. But God has come all the way over here. He's done all of the work in Jesus for forgiveness and the one thing he requires, the one response from us is that one last little step. He requires faith. He needs people to believe in him. He asks for nothing else from us. God has spoken in his word to us. 66 books of inspired truth in what we call the Bible. You hold it in your hands right now, I hope. God has revealed who he is, how good and perfect he is, how every one of us has turned away from him, exchanging his truth for a lie. And the one thing he requires is that we believe in him, that we trust in him. On every single page of his precious message, it, it just leaps off the page, believe in me, really believe in me, really trust in who I am. He's written it in poetry and prophecy and in history and in wisdom sayings. And finally, in these last days, he took on flesh and he sent his son in the, into the world to reveal himself. He speaks to hearts by his spirit. He cuts us to our core. He requires one thing, believe. Believe me. God is not willing that any should perish, but many do. Many spend an eternity apart from Christ because of unbelief. We've been reading through the book of Revelation, and uh, back in chapter 14, it was written that one of the last things that happens is an angel is sent out over the entire earth to proclaim the eternal gospel. Repent and believe and fear God. And this morning, as we were reading the final result of the bowls of God's wrath being poured out onto the earth, like a, like a hideous refrain, we heard, and they did not repent, and still they did not repent. John's gospel, as we've been working our way through it, has prepared us to think about Jesus and his ministry and his mission in this way. Since chapter 1, the opening words, some of the opening words in the gospel says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, who were not born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. And again in John 6, in 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever, what? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right after that, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed. I know this is not really a normal introduction to a sermon. Uh, some of you might be expecting to close things off in prayer any minute now, actually. Uh, but this is the necessary background that we need in order to understand what happens at the end of John 4, as we're going to read our passage this morning. John 4, verses uh, 43 to 54. If we have any hope of figuring out why Jesus does what he does in John 4, why he says what he says to crowds of people who flock around him looking for miracles, or why, why we see Jesus respond the way he responds to a desperate father seeking help for his dying son, we need this as our background. It's the same background we need in our own walk of faith to understand why God does certain things and why he doesn't do others, why he allows certain things. 
God is interested in your ultimate good, and what is very best for you is to know him, to trust in him, to believe in him as much as possible. God is at work turning hearts to trust him and believe him, and if we lose sight of that, we have a really hard time understanding what God is doing at all. So it's a little backwards, but I'm pretty much giving you the conclusion of my message right here. In any situation, God is most concerned with doing what's really for our best. And what is for our best is whatever will cause us to believe in him the most. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to read beginning in verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee... And Jesus, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This relatively short passage of 12 verses that we just read is packed full of geographical references and references that point back to what John has already said in his gospel. We read over and over, he departed for Galilee. Two two days later, we're going to talk about it's two days later after what, in just a second. Uh, There's references to the miracles before in Cana, references of the way he's left Judea and he's come to Galilee. Verse 43 starts with the words, after the two days he departed for Galilee. And if you look back up the page to the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, you'll read this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So the direction of Jesus' current travel plans is away from Judea. That would be the central region of Israel, down where Jerusalem was and toward the outlying region of Galilee in the north. Galilee being sort of on the outer fringes of Israel in Jesus' day. Galilee is where Nazareth, where Nazareth was. Bethlehem was where Jesus was born, down near Jerusalem, but Nazareth, Nazareth was where Jesus grew up, his hometown. And in Galilee, there are some other towns that are featured quite a bit in our New Testament writings, Capernaum and Cana. So Jesus is moving away from Jerusalem because he's attracting too much attention and opposition there. And in order to get to Galilee, he has to pass through what would be considered non-Jewish territory in Samaria. Last week, we heard about his encounter there with the woman at the well, how he revealed to her that he was the promised Messiah. She ran and told other people in the town. 
Around verses 39 to 40, we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Which brings us to verse 43, after the two days, which must have been after those two days in Samaria, where he was getting such a good reaction from those people, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So this gets a little tricky, because the way John has written it, it seems to say that even though Jesus was getting such a positive reaction in Samaria, he still departed for Galilee, which was his original destination, even though he knew that the reception in Galilee would not be as positive as it was in Samaria. I'm pretty sure that's what verse 44 means. But then verse 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. That's not what I was expecting to read after verse 44. But we need to read closely, because the text specifically says this. The Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They too had been at the feast. And John has told us back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, you don't have to flip there, but I'll read them, what happened at that feast. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, the Galileans welcomed him on account of all the cool signs and wonders that they had seen him do. They were the kind of people that Jesus was not trusting himself to, even though they appeared to be welcoming him on the surface. The other gospel writers record the actual time when Jesus said those words. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It was in Nazareth, Jesus' literal hometown. But verse 44 is right in, if you have the ESV, it's rightly in brackets and not in red ink, uh, not in quotation marks, because John is just sort of inserting Jesus' remarks. He remembers that Jesus said that. He says, remember that Jesus said that that one time. It's kind of an explanation for this move in Jesus' ministry now. He left a largely negative reaction in Judea. He stopped off in non-Jewish territory in the middle, received a great reaction in Samaria, and then arrives in Galilee to a crowd that's more interested in the things Jesus was able to do than in Jesus himself. I think that that phrase, a prophet has no honor in his hometown, is meant to point us back towards John's opening words in his prologue, where it says he came to his own, and his own people received him not. There's exceptions, of course, but by and large, Jesus' own people, the Jews, the ones who should have recognized their Messiah, they did not receive him. The credentials for entry into God's kingdom were being redrawn. They, they no longer had anything to do with physical descent from Abraham, but Jesus is pointing out that to be a child of God, you need faith like Abraham. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What always seems to happen is that as Jesus reveals more of himself through his word, through various signs, and finally, climactically, through his death and resurrection, some people see and hear and believe, but many people see and hear the exact same thing, and they do not believe. In fact, they end up even more hardened than they ever were before. Which might help to explain to us why Jesus seemed to have such a complicated opinion of his own signs and miracles. They were a necessary demonstration of who he was. On one hand, he did them so some would see and would believe and would have faith, but on the other hand, many people would get the wrong impression. 
And because of those signs and miracles, they would clamor after the wrong thing and end up further from faith in him than they were before. In the end, when the light shines into the darkness, there are only two responses. Those in the dark come to the light, or those in the dark flee the light for fear of being exposed, and they skitter back even further into the dark than they were before. But ask yourself this, how many would be saved if the light never shone into the dark? None. God does not want any to perish. But if he's going to save some, then the very truth that will save them is going to have to come. Before we move on, just a little tiny side reflection about that phrase, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I know many of us, perhaps even all of us, uh, we, we have a hard time reading those words without a heavy heart. Because there's no one that we pray for more than our lost friends and family and loved ones. And sometimes it feels as if there's no soil less receptive to our witness than there. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what that feels like more than you can even imagine. Not only does he know, but he gives us a model for what faithful obedience looks like to the Father in that area. He left Samaria to, to depart for Galilee because that's where he was called, even when the reception was not going to be the best. He went there knowing that the response of his own countrymen was in the hands of his father. Some would receive him, but many wouldn't. Does the poor response to Jesus' witness among his own people call into question Jesus' obedience to the Father's will? Of course not. Neither does the response of the people that you're sent to call into question your obedience. Going on in verse 46. So he came again to Cana and Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this, man heard, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, question. When all the crowds in Samaria put their faith in Jesus, what miraculous sign did he do to inspire that faith? He didn't do one. He did tell the woman at the well all about her past. He did do that. And that was what initially got her attention and what initially got others' attention in coming to him. But when you look at verse 41, you get the real answer. It says, many more believed because of his word. It wasn't showy miracles that led to their belief. It was the word that Jesus spoke that inspired their belief. Fast forward to Galilee, Jesus' home turf, and there's this crowd that is more excited about what kind of show Jesus might put on than who he was or what he had to say. And among that crowd is one royal official, probably someone of noteworthy influence in Herod's court, who has come in from Capernaum because he's heard that Jesus of Nazareth is there. And he's heard that where Jesus of Nazareth is, things happen. Wonderful things, things that should be impossible, things that you normally couldn't even hope for. That kind of stuff happens around Jesus. And on the surface, this man might look just like the rest of the crowd. But there's something that separates him from them. He hasn't just come because he has an interest in being entertained by a spectacle. He's not here out of curiosity. He is here, John tells us, because he is desperate. His son is sick to the point of imminent death. 
but there is nothing in this man's considerable earthly resources that can help his son. He's come to the hard realization that the kind of help he needs is something that can only be found outside of himself, outside of the whole realm of natural, natural expectations in this world. No sinner has ever embraced the gracious gift that Jesus provides without first being seized by a hopeless, the hopeless predicament that they're in because of their sin. And in the same way, this father has come to Jesus because he, has, he understands one thing, one thing. There is help nowhere else. If there's going to be help, it's going to be found in Jesus. He doesn't have time to weigh out issues about whether or not he's worthy to even come and ask for this help. He might not even be sure that Jesus can grant this help, but he has to ask. And so he begins to plead with Jesus to come down with him back to Capernaum because it's a matter of life and death. Jesus directs his response not just to the official, but also to the whole crowd that's watching. Because it's in the plural. It says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And if that seems like a harsh response to a man who's showing a faint little glimmer of faith in the face of the death of his son, you wouldn't be alone in thinking that this morning. It does seem a little bit harsh. But this is where we need to remember that the goal that Jesus is working towards in this situation is not the goal that you or I might see on the surface and be tempted to work towards. But this is life and death. The boy might die, we might say. This is, this is serious. That's exactly what the man does say in verse 49. But the driving reason Jesus performs his signs is for the same reason that John gives us a recording of them. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus knows this is a life and death situation, but he sees it as a situation where eternal life is at stake. If he's going to perform a sign, it's going to be with the goal of getting people to believe in him. Because if they don't do that, they're going to die and come under judgment. Their death will be eternal death. But despite the rebuke from Jesus, this man still has enough desperate hope to beg Jesus one more time, come down before my child dies. And in verse 50, we have, I think, the absolute heart of this passage. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Up until now, the man has been begging Jesus to go somewhere, to do something for him, to come down with him to Capernaum. But Jesus wants to test this man in a way that is going to lead him to faith. Not just in what Jesus can do, but in who he is. Jesus says, I will not go. You go. I won't bend to your ideas of how I should act. I won't jump through your hoops. But if you believe, I will give you the help you came here looking for. Do you have any idea what Jesus has done to that man with those two little statements? Go, your son will live. What's he done to him? He's put him in a position where his faith now needs to rest in who Jesus is and what Jesus has said, not in anything he can see. If he's going to take Jesus at his word, then he must leave Cana without the one thing he came for. He came to bring Jesus back with him. He's going to have to leave without that, but with just a word, with just a promise. His faith needs to be placed not in the, the, not in the immediate satisfaction of a showy miracle, but in trustworthiness, in the trustworthiness of Jesus himself. Isn't that what happens to us too, when we stop talking at Jesus, or talking about him, or arguing about him? And finally, alarmingly, 
our faith gets challenged by a word that actually comes to us from Jesus. It could be a scary experience, even for those of us who spend the most time talking about him, to actually hear his voice, to actually hear from him in his word. C.S. Lewis wrote about our tendency to reduce God to some kind of impersonal, lowercase g uh, God, the kind of God that we can talk about, we can hold pleasant little ideas about him in our head, the kind of God that is sort of impersonal, like a feel-good, therapeutic God idea that we could just lean on for strength when we need it. We just say, oh, I've got to have faith. He compared that kind of a God to a book on a shelf. It's there if you reach for it. That kind of God is there if you reach for him. But he's not the kind of God who's ever going to pursue you. He'll never make demands of you. There's no danger that that kind of God will ever make impositions of you. No likelihood that that kind of made-up God is going to turn out to be larger than your ideas of him. There's no worry that at any moment heaven and earth might shrink away from that little make-believe God's glance. But the God who reveals himself to mankind through creation and through his word cannot be reduced to that kind of God. And the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels can't be manipulated or directed to our own little petty ends. Jesus, as we encounter him in the Gospels, is always in the driver's seat. G. Campbell Morgan interpreted this exchange between Jesus and the official this way. I will not give you a sign, but I will give you a word. You get your sign after you put your faith in my word. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you get everything else thrown in but miss him and you miss it all. And then the second half of verse 50, the response of this man. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man's desperation has been transformed through this encounter with Jesus into faith that trusts Jesus' word and responds in obedience. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's a little interesting to reflect on the progression of this one man's faith in light of what's written in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where Jesus is described as the author and the perfecter of our faith. If I scared you a little with the opening section today about that unforgivable sin of unbelief, here's a little bit of comfort. There is no scrap of faith so meager and so fragile that Jesus cannot and will not take it and shape it and direct it until it is full-blown saving faith in him. There is no genuine faith that comes to Jesus that he cannot nurture and build and work with. Jesus is the one of whom the scriptures say, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. The fact that God's primary redemptive activity in the world is to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ helps put things in perspective for us. We have a tendency to focus on immediate needs and wonder why God isn't doing anything about that. I would suggest the answer has to be because he knows better than we do. And he knows the things that will actually deepen our faith in him. Like we said earlier, God wants the very best for us, which means, that, which means nothing less than knowing him. 
Nothing less than knowing him more is what's best for you. The signs and wonders that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, they all served an important and unique purpose. They revealed something about Jesus and who he was. He turned water to wine at Cana to show that the new life that had been promised all along by the prophets, that new life was here. It had arrived in Jesus, and Jesus changed everything. In healing the official son, he demonstrated a power over sickness, even from a distance. He demonstrated power even over life and death. And he also demonstrated that he often knows a lot better than we do. Sometimes we have to trust the way he's handling a situation because it, it is actually for our best, for our benefit, to help us trust him more. The people who ask and wonder why we don't see the same kind of miracles today, I would, I would suggest that they aren't the kind of thing that would produce the best faith in us right now or the most faith in the world right now. And we might doubt that, but we have to believe it because God is at work bringing people to trust in him. What the Samaritans responded to was the word of Jesus. The word that you hold in your hands right now, the word that's taught and heard in churches and in homes, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Let's not despise the word of Christ that we have so much free access to. That's where he's going to speak. That's where we're going to hear from him. And that, that is how he's going to cause us to believe in him. Jesus once declared that if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which, by the way, was exactly what Jesus did. It was the greatest response to that continual request for a sign. They were always asking him, show us a sign, show us a sign. He died and rose again. God has already provided the greatest sign that could ever be given. It was wrapped up in the climax of his plan for salvation when Jesus died for sinners and rose again three days later. God has already done it. He's already done everything. And whenever people hear, they respond. Some people respond in faith, others respond in unbelief. Just as the smallest bit of faith can be taken and nurtured and grown by Christ, unfortunately, rejection and unbelief also hardens with time as well. Until someone arrives at a place where they have cut themselves off for any chance at forgiveness because they have rejected God's offer. I gave, my, I gave you my conclusion back a while ago already, that God is most interested in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. That, that is absolutely what's best for them. And that's what he's at work doing. We have to trust that he knows better than we do, that the situations we face right now are the best ones, the best opportunities for us to trust in him and believe in him, to hear his voice and to take him at his word. I, I just want to leave you this morning with one final reflection. A long time ago, I've heard, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard as well, the catchy little saying, catchy little saying about prayer, that God answers every prayer with one of three responses. Right, what are they? Yes, no, wait. Some of you might have encountered that saying in fridge magnet form or bumper sticker form. It always annoys me they, they never put the chapter and verse reference when they, when they put that quote, but... For most of us in high school, that meant that God obviously intended for us to wait a little while until that girl agreed to go out with us. <laughs> on the basis of John 4, verse 50, I would like to add at least one more potential response. One more response of Jesus when we bring our requests to him. Yes, 
No, wait, sure. But to that I would add, go. When you bring your quest to Jesus, you might be, might be surprised and he might tell you, go. Maybe the most thrilling and terrifying and exhilarating answer we can hear from Jesus is an overriding command that puts all of our own requests in the back seat and asks us to just go. Jesus' response might be, go and it will be done to you according to my word. As we encounter him in the Gospels, Jesus gave lots of invitations and commands. He said, come, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He told one sinful woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. To another one, he said, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Jesus said, go make disciples to the ends of the earth and I will be with you to the end of the age. He said, behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to each according to what he has done. Come to Jesus and listen for his voice when you come to the word. He says, go, and it will be done to you according to my word.